1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. They could become an independent dominion within the British Empire, or they could vote to join Canada in Confederation. The anti-Confederates are not going to get away with it. But St. John's was an anti-Confederate headquarters. Watch in particular the attractive bait which will be held out to lure our country into the Canadian mousetrap. Listen to the Stories Behind the History podcast for our special series, How Did Newfoundland Join Canada? Available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, Phelan. Hey, Leah. Welcome to the first ever Secret Life of Canada live show. Yes, we are here at the Hot Docs Podcast Festival at the Ted Rogers Cinema, recording in front of a live studio audience. And we are joined by a great group of people who have agreed to help us tell you a bit about the history of Toronto. As we go through this episode, our friends here will be reenacting some of Toronto's finest and most shame-filled moments in history. He is a writer and alumnus of the Second City Toronto. You may have seen him in the Beaverton, Baroness Von Sketch Show, and he has written and performed on CBC's This Hour Has 22 Minutes. Please welcome Annex residents, Brandon Hackett! Hi there. Hey, oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Leanne uh, Phelan. Uh, thank you so much. You know, living in the annex is great. I actually live just up the street. Uh, <laughs> and I was 45 minutes late for call. Uh, uh, but living in the annex is really, really great. Uh, it's got a lot of uh, cheap, affordable student housing, which is great. And it uh, feels great living in it as a full-grown man. Yeah. That's great. Well, here's to living like you're 21 years old for the rest of your life. Thanks to the new economy, am I right? I'm an artist. Okay. Next up, he's an improviser, performer, writer, a Second City Toronto alum. You may have seen him in Molly's Game, Odd Squad, The Baroness Von Sketch Show, or heard him on CBC's Because News. Give it up for Little Italy resident Chris Siddiqui. <laughs> Hey, Chris. Hey. Uh, actually, you know what? I got renovicted out of my little Italy neighborhood. So now I live in quaint little Portugal. I think getting kicked out of, uh, out of your apartment by a corrupt landlord really is a Toronto rite of passage, though. Am I right? Yeah. Absolutely. Wow, this is going really well so far. Okay, so next up, she is an actor, writer, and improviser. You may know her from showcases, Billable Hours, Murdoch Mysteries, or Anne with an E, and you'll be seeing her in the brand new season of Kim's Convenience. Please welcome Queen West resident Jane Luke. Everybody, thanks, Leah, for that intro. Actually, I live in West Queen West, to make it more accurate, because we're west of the Queen West. And, uh, you know, living there, you know, you come across a lot of condos and coffee shops, and really, really beautiful condos and coffee shops, and a lot, a ton of these little mini cactus stores. Yeah. True. So... 
Last but not least, playing music for us tonight, he is critically acclaimed award-winning composer and musical improviser. His musical, The Second City Guide to the Symphony, is now touring across North America and being performed by some of the Hemisphere's top orchestras. Please welcome St. Lawrence resident, Mr. Matt Reed. Thank you very much, Matt. So I live in Little Portugal, or as I like to say, Little Portugal lives on my land. <laughs> but Leah, you didn't tell us where you live. Oh, Fallon, I'm not telling hundreds of people how to find me after this show. All right, tonight we are going to peer into the darkest recesses of Toronto's history and ask, Why, why does everyone hate us? Hi, I'm Moore. I live in Victoria, BC. Um, Toronto... <laughs> it's a hellscape. Um, no, that's just a joke between me and my friends. Just because, like, our other friend who lives there is always, like, complaining about, like, people crashing into trolleys and, like, traffic being hell and the TTC being hell. Um, and the other joke is, like, it's Raccoon City, like, both in the, like, biohazard sense, like, you know, Resident Evil, but also just, like, there's a million raccoons there. I'm Nikita Bala. I live in Montreal. I've lived here for the last five years. And I've only been to Toronto twice, but my associations with it are corporations, business, expensive rent, condos, glass buildings, but also art and film and theater. And uh, I really think that it's it has this reputation of being a very multicultural city, like a lot of people from a lot of cultures can find home there. So I think it's pretty cool. Hi everybody, my name is Janet Rogers and I'm from Six Nations Territory and Degaranto, since you've asked. It's a big city and it uh, needs to stop acting like New York's younger sibling and find its own identity and also create and maintain more green spaces. Um, it's stinky, it's loud, there's lots of pollution around and it just needs to clean up its act. There you go. <laughs> Hey, uh, my name is Telly James. Uh, what I love about Toronto is, um, well, in contrast, uh, growing up in Alberta, you're very much aware that you're not one of them. But when I was in Toronto, you know, I felt like I was just another douchebag in a sea of douchebags. I mean, I kind of know why. I would say it's probably our ego. We love our city, and we're a bit over the top with it. Yeah, I mean, I'm originally from Edmonton, and my first proper day in Toronto, I ended up in the neighborhood known as the Annex. That's where Brandon lives. It's close to the university, and when I ordered a coffee, the barista asked me, Well, hey, uh, where are you from? Oh, um, I'm, uh, I'm from Edmonton, but I just moved here. Oh, Edmonton, huh? Yeah. Well, welcome to Canada. What a jerk. Yeah, total, total butthole. And his response is not uncommon. No, not at all. And that's also kind of a Toronto rite of passage, being treated poorly by a barista. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So for this episode, we're going to try and unpack two things. One, where did the moniker Toronto the Good come from? And two, why does the rest of Canada view us like the successful family member that you want to hate, but you need to be nice to because you know they're loaded and you don't want to be left out of the will? Mm, yeah. yeah. But Toronto wasn't always known as the big city. The land Toronto sits on is thousands of years old and has had a great biodiversity before we paved over everything to make way for shoppers' drug marts. 
People were in the area around 11,000 years ago, right after the Ice Age. These early inhabitants hunted small animals as well as mammoths and mastodons in a boreal forest. Later on, indigenous people created a shortcut between Lake Ontario in the south and Georgian Bay in the north. This became known as the Caring Place Trail. Yes, the water was a major portage route that connected Lake Ontario, Lake Simcoe, and the Northern Great Lakes. The Caring Place Trail eventually became known as the Toronto Passage and was used by many Indigenous nations for trading. Yeah, First Nations people would make their way by canoe and there was a lot of portaging involved. That's when you carry a canoe on land between two bodies of water. Yeah, they would walk along the swampy and wooded banks of the Humber River because at the time the river had a lot of beaver dams which would block the route. So this is pre-fur trade, obviously. Yes, all the beavers were still alive. So the Toronto Passage, or the Caring Place Trail, was pretty brutal to travel by today's standards. It was 28 miles and one of the longest in North America, and it was a really fast route to get to the Great Lakes. So in every piece of history you read about this trail, it usually goes like this. Indigenous people created a trail to make it easier for them to get to places. And then, French trader extraordinaire Etienne Brulé was the first European to see and travel it. Yeah. Actually, some sources say that it didn't even happen and that he actually traveled a couple other passages, but still we see in history that it's not a thing unless a a white explorer sees it. Yeah, it's like if a tree falls in the woods and no old white guy is around to see it and only a hundred indigenous people see it, Did it happen? (laughs) Yeah, but nevertheless, people have written a lot about Brule, and that seems to be because he was the mentee of the explorer of all explorers, Samuel de Champlain. (laughs) This is my favorite. This is my kind of crowd. I mean, yes, okay. He who will not be named wrote about Etienne Brule as having lived with the Wendat for years. There was one with them named Etienne Brule, uh, one of your interpreters who had lived among them for eight years, he, as much to pass the time as to see the country and learn the language and their way of life. So while this story of the beginnings of the Toronto Passage often revolves around Etienne Brulé seeing it for the first time, we think it actually went something more like this. Hey, people, look, I found a thing that already has a name, but let's call it the Toronto Passage. Hey, fantastic, we can get places faster. I can't believe you discovered this! Ah. Yeah, some Wendat people showed it to me. By the way, I'm really happy that we decided for no apparent reason to rename the Wendat Hero. So you discovered the shortcut, huh? Let's make sure the history books center around you for the rest of time! Me! 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 Moi! Well, it worked well for me. I'm Samuel Duchamplain! Okay, but I want to know how Toronto got its name. 
Well, the name Toronto comes from Tukoronto, which is an Iroquoian language, which means where the trees stand in the shallow water or the gathering place. Where the city Toronto now sits was once the site of large indigenous settlements, two of these being the villages of Diagon and Gonetskawagon. Toronto has a number of waterways going through it, some larger like the Don Valley and some smaller like Garrison Creek, which was diverted underground to make way for development. The waterways were a major reason why Indigenous people settled in the area. All of these waterways made for good travel, good hunting, good fishing. Yeah, the waterways and land in these parts started to be named Lac Torontos on French maps dating back 340 years ago. Settlers knew that Toronto was an important piece of land, and it wasn't just the wicked fishing. The French loved the area for trading, and around 1750, the French built Fort Toronto near the Toronto Passage, and 34 years later, John Graves Simcoe ordered a garrison built at what is now Fort York. This would be to fortify the area. Now, Fort York is now a patch of grass in the middle of downtown, where groundhogs basically hide from bulldozers. But <laughs> it's sad but true. You know it's true. Yeah. But then... Fort York once protected Canada against the United States when they declared war on us. And if history has shown us anything, we might want to prepare for that again because it's feeling a bit threat-level midnight down there. Yeah. So now the War of 1812 was fought across Ontario and involved many different battles. But because of Fort York, Toronto gets a lot and maybe takes a lot of credit for its mythology. And we think it might be when Toronto started to get a bad rap. Yeah, in the war, many nations came together to fight the U.S. Hello, my name is General Isaac Brock. I'm British. I'm going to fight the Americans at the Battle of Queenston Heights with Mohawk warriors. And then I'm going to get shot and die for a whole lot of reasons. But the biggest one is because I decided to wear a sash that Shawnee warrior Tecumseh gave me. We actually traded sashes and it was just uh, such a fashion departure that I stood out on the battlefield. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Yeah, uh, my name is uh, Pahumba Wingdung, but uh, just call me Thomas Smith because you guys will make a mess of my name and I'm going to be angry the whole way through the war. I'm proud Mississauga. Look, I'll be frank. We're fighting to have less white people here. Does that make sense? No offense to you guys, but you know, we'd like less of you. I'm going and- to interrupt you. I'm British. <laughs> My name is Major General Sir Roger Sheaf. I just want to bring up this before we go to war. It's been really bothering me. Someone keeps stealing my wig. I don't feel like myself without it. It's white with tight curls, and it's got the name Roger inside of it, so please return it to me. No questions asked. On April 27, 1813, the U.S. attacked Fort York with 2,700 men on 14 ships. The Americans stormed in, and the fighting became intense. Roger Sheaf ended up lighting their artillery storage area on fire. An enormous explosion tore through the fort as gunpowder ignited. Guys! Guys, I blew something up! I wasn't wearing my wig, but I still managed to do it! Apparently, 
The real wig was inside of me this whole time. Oh, what a guy. <laughs> so great. <laughs> the explosion was devastating, but it didn't work. York was still captured, and that meant the Americans started to burn and loot in what would soon be called Toronto. York had built itself into a bustling place. It had many stores and buildings, including Parliament buildings. By 1814, the British had a retaliation plan. No plan. Okay. We're going to go to Washington. Yeah. And then we're going to burn down the White House. Brilliant. And 200 years from now, they'll still blame Canadians. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the White House being lit on fire might be one of the best known events of the War of 1812. What is less remembered is the contribution of over 10,000 First Nations warriors from across 24 different indigenous nations who fought alongside the British. Their contributions helped to secure what is now called Canada. In 2012, the city of Toronto commemorated these indigenous allies by renaming Lower Jarvis Warrior's Way. The truth is, the Americans could not have been defeated without First Nations warriors. Also during this time of fighting, there were several units of Canadian militia that fought in the war. This included the Color Corps, a unit of black Canadians that fought at the Battle of Queenston Heights. The troops consisted of both free and enslaved soldiers, as there were still enslaved black people in Canada at this time. For the free among them, the prospect of Americans taking over Canada meant slavery at the hands of Americans. The stakes for the Colored Corps were high. On the eve of the war, at 68 years old, Richard Pierpoint, a Senegalese man who was sold into slavery and eventually gained his freedom, petitioned the government to form an independent company composed entirely of black men. The government turned down his offer, but as things intensified, they decided it wasn't a bad idea to have more people. But instead of granting Richard Pierpoint command, the honor was bestowed to a local white officer and tavern owner, Captain Robert Runchy. Runchy was a terrible leader and segregated the Color Corps from other militiamen. In some cases, Runchy hired out black soldiers as domestic servants to other officers. Here is how he was described by a fellow white officer. Uh, a worthless, troublesome malcontent. It is rumored that he intends personally to wait on His Excellency, the Lieutenant Governor, and to request his acceptance of his resignation. This I sincerely hope he may do, and that His Excellency may be pleased to accept of the same, as he is almost the only one I can, I can term as a black sheep in our regiment and with whom the officers, I believe, would gladly part. Eight years after the War of 1812, in recognition of his contributions, Richard was granted 100 acres on the land of the Grand River, which is my territory. But Richard wanted to go home. He was 76 years old, and it would be hard on his body to farm. So he wrote another petition to the government. The petition of Richard Pierpoint, now of the town of Niagara, a man of color, a native of Africa, and an inhabitant of this province since the year 1780. Most humbly show with that your excellency's petitioner is a native of Bondu in Africa. 
that at the age of 16 years he was made a prisoner and sold as a slave, that he was conveyed to America about the year 1760 and sold to a British officer, that he served his majesty during the American Revolutionary War and in the corps called Butler's Rangers, and again during the American Revolutionary War in the Corps of Color, raised on the Niagara frontier. That year, Excellency's petitioner is now old and without property, that he finds it difficult to obtain a livelihood by his labor. That he is above all things desirous to return to his native country, that his majesty's government may be graciously pleased to grant him any relief. He wishes it may be affording him the means to proceed to England, and from thence, as to a settlement near the Gambia or Senegal rivers, from whence he could return to Bondu. His petition was denied, and Richard never got to go home. He turned his land into a settlement for black Canadians and welcomed black people fleeing slavery. He is one of the many stories of the War of 1812 that we don't hear as often. But what we did hear after the war, despite the fact that so many cities and towns took part in the fight, in this neck of the woods, everyone was like, Toronto! 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 Yeah, okay. Well, actually, Toronto or Toronto's name had been changed at this time by Lord Simcoe to York in honor of the Duke of York. So actually, people would have been more cheering like... York! 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 York. Unless you were First Nations, and then you would have been like... Actually, Toronto! We named it Toronto! We call it Toronto! While the war was happening and settlers were establishing this fledgling city, the Mississaugas were being displaced and pushed off a land that they had lived on and traveled on for centuries. In 1787, the British government attempted to buy the land that would become Toronto from the Mississauga, but the deed for the original purchase was left blank. The exact size of land was unclear, and the names of the Mississauga chiefs were only attached to it by separate pieces of paper. In January 1794, Governor General Dorchester wrote a letter to John Simcoe, the Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada, stating that the blank deed was of no validity and said it had an omission which will set aside the whole transaction and throw us entirely on the good faith of the Indians for just so much land as they are willing to allow. It would take another 215 years for the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation to get paid for Toronto. In 2010, through a settlement, the government of Canada finally paid the Mississauga $144 million to settle the land claim of the Toronto Purchase. That amount was based on what was considered a fair price for the land in 1805, converted to $2,010. The agreement was reached only after years of legal wrangling, negotiations, and an official commission. What this meant is that Toronto and much of southern Ontario was built up and developed illegally by people who had no title to the land. The name Toronto Purchase is an ironic one. Toronto. 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 Yeah. So by this point, the city had really ticked off the Mississaugas, and the rest of Ontario was also getting tired. Places like Kingston and Stony Creek, who had taken part in the fight, were pushed aside in the narrative of the War of 1812. Pretty much the rest of Canada was okay with Toronto until... Until it was time to pick a capital city. In 1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. 
They could become an independent dominion within the British Empire, or they could vote to join Canada in Confederation. The anti-Confederates are not going to get away with it. But St. John's was an anti-Confederate headquarters. Watch in particular the attractive bait which will be held out to lure our country into the Canadian mousetrap. Listen to the Stories Behind the History podcast for our special series, How Did Newfoundland Join Canada? Available now wherever you get your podcasts. For a time in Canada, the capital rotated from city to... I can tell some people here are still sore about this. <laughs> the capital city rotated from city to city every four years when Upper in Canada and Lower Canada were unified in 1841. Kingston was chosen because it was the largest city in Ontario and there was still street parking so you could park your horse after rush hour. Yeah, that's, that's important. Yeah. Then in 1844, Montreal was chosen in recognition of Montreal's obvious importance as Canada's economic and cultural center and because everyone desperately wanted to get out of Kingston. Due to the terrible road construction in Montreal and too much ennui, everyone decided that by 1849, I'm glad you guys got that. I had to, Leah had to explain ennui to me. I was like, do I the was ennui like, I don't know joke. what ennui do is. Do the ennui joke. It's yeah. going to kill. It did. She, okay. You were right. You were I right. right. I learned so much. <laughs> Due to too much ennui, everyone decided that by 1849, the capital of Canada would be Toronto, and it stayed that way until 1851. Then Quebec City was the capital until 1855, and then Toronto got it back again. And when they did, they really rejoiced in it. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, Okay, now okay, just stop, stop, stop. It's too much, it's too much. So Toronto was becoming a bit much, and by 1857, the rest of Canada begged Queen Victoria to pick a capital because they obviously were having a hard time deciding amongst themselves. Here is a reenactment of how they finally decided. <coughs> Toronto. Quebec City. Montreal. Toronto. Can Kingston still be in the mix? No, Montreal. Uh, look, can we please just decide? Look, I'm thinking the best way to do this is just ask the Queen. I mean, we pay her an exorbitant amount of money just to... Okay, look, I don't know what she does, okay? But let's just make her do it. Oh, all right. Sounds like yeah, a good idea. Go. Uh, quickly, to the palace! Uh, Ma'am, mm. the Canadians are really annoying. Yes. <laughs> well, then just give them back to the Americans. <laughs> this, I, I really can't stand the way they sip the Tim Hortons tea and coffee and apologizing all the while to their horribly straight teeth. <laughs> give them back to the Americans. Good night. <laughs> your, your, your Majesty. We can't just give them back. What? Uh, the, the colony is ours. It is our duty to pick a capital before they kill each other. Now, here, as you can see on this map, they are stuck between Toronto and yes. uh, Quebec City. Uh, I see. Well then, give me a pin. Now, I shall randomly... 
only stick this pin between the two cities, and that is how we shall decide. Oshawa it is. <laughs> and now, please leave. I have to watch, binge watch season two of The Crown. <laughs> Spoiler alert, you die. <laughs> and that is exactly what happened. Prince Albert, Victoria's husband, sent a letter over with the decision. I return the enclosed papers with very best thanks. Ottawa must indeed be a beautiful situation, and all the detached descriptions must tend to confirm the impressions that the choice is the right one. We must now trust that the province will look upon it in the same light when it becomes known. Sir John A. Macdonald knew that when Toronto and Quebec City found out, all hell would break loose. He wrote to the Queen. Uh, that this house is uh, duly grateful to Her Majesty for complying with the address of her Canadian Parliament, praying Her Majesty to select a permanent seat of government, but that this house deeply regrets that the city which Her Majesty has been advised to select is not acceptable to a large majority of the Canadian people. The A's are 45, the nays are, god damn it, 63. Might as well go for a soda, eh? McDonald wanted it made known. He was not into this decision, so he made sure the Toronto papers printed what he thought. Hey guys, John A here. Hey, uh, so you might have heard about this uh, Ottawa becoming the capital news. You heard about this? Anybody hear about this? And I just want to make it clear, I am not down for it at all. Uh, please still vote for me, and uh, please don't hurt me. Oh, and uh, by the way, in the future, when people are trying to tear down statues of me because I was the architect of the residential school system, eh, just let them know I'd be okay with it. Patio lanterns, eh? And that is exactly what happened, exactly what he said verbatim. He said that. Yes, he did. So that was supposed to be the end of it, but people and politicians of the day were livid. Yeah, in fact, in a rare move for this time period, people rejected Queen Victoria's verdict. Torontonians made a decision. Four more years! Four more years! Four more years! That's right. Toronto kept holding Parliament for four years. Yeah, the ego of the city was large, and we never really got over not being the capital. And although chosen in 1857, Ottawa did not hold its first session of Parliament for another nine years. So by this time, Quebec hates Toronto. Ottawa hates Toronto. Hell, even the Queen hates Toronto. Yeah. It's no wonder then people across Ontario started calling Toronto Hogtown. A Globe article headline from 1898 was entitled, Our Friend, the Hog. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. Um, in the smaller cities of the province, when a man wants to say nasty things about Toronto, he calls it Hogtown. Yes, the remark was originally, uh, originally had no relation at all to our friend the hog, but was merely intended to convey an impression that the citizens of Toronto were poor sign in their tendencies. <laughs> so Toronto was getting quite the reputation, and even amongst its own residents, it was starting to get a bad rap. The city was growing fast. Between 1831 and 1891, the population grew five times its size. People were complaining of filth, 
vagrancy, crime, but most of all, they were complaining about booze because there was so much alcohol flowing, a movement took hold. Temperance societies. Now, temperance means moderation or self-restraint in drinking. Temperance societies initially tolerated some moderate use of beer and wine, but eventually they would call for total prohibition. Around 1848, the Sons of Temperance Lodge, a fraternal and prohibitionist society, reached Canada from the United States. Hundreds of societies, lodges, and church groups started to organize, and many of them were started by women. It was a movement that was supported by women due to the economic and family reasons. Women, for the most part, could not be employed in most jobs, and therefore it was harder for women to support her family. If she had a husband or a family member who spent all their money on alcohol, which was happening a lot, it could mean destitution for her and her children. Many women blamed alcohol as the biggest single cause of domestic violence. They also believed that it was contributing to early deaths, poverty, and sexual assault. While women were the loudest voices pushing for change, there were many men in Toronto that had become preoccupied with the challenge to turn this city around. One man named William Howland was particularly obsessed. It is 1886, and I, William Howland, an evangelical Christian businessman, have a quest to improve life in the most downtrodden parts of the city. The only way to truly turn the city around is to run for mayor. My main focus is cleaning up the city, getting rid of drunkenness. Also, Toronto city water is disgusting, so I plan to clean up that too. Howland ran his campaign with religious fervor. He wanted also to... Stop the desecration of the Sabbath! (laughs) He figured too much was going on on Sundays. It was Howland who campaigned with a new slogan, Toronto the Good. His supporters would be seen with brooms in their hands, spouting that only he would be the one to clean up the city. Which is weird, because Mayor David Miller more than a hundred years later, would also campaign with a broom, so it's a thing. Yeah, in a way, David Miller and William Howland had a lot in common with the rest of Toronto's mayors. They were white, English-speaking men. Out of 65 mayors, three of them have been Jewish, and only two have been women. So all I'm saying is all of us up here on this stage should be mayor. Okay, so back to William Howland. He won the race, and he became the 25th mayor of Toronto. Even though some of the new mayor's ideas, like no streetcars or newspapers on Sundays, were seen to be extreme, he won because up until then, Toronto had some interesting mayors, to say the least. There was a lot of conflict in this period between the political parties of the Tories and the reformers, and it often led to violence. The mayors were not exempt from it, so let's meet a few of them. Yes, I'm Mayor George Gurnett, and I tarred and feathered a reform opposition candidate in 1828. Yeah, what can I say? He deserved it! Hello, jerks. I'm Mayor John Powell, and I committed murder! Just before I took office, I shot a man with a single bullet to the head, just straight up ended his life. Bye-bye! I was also trying to kill another former mayor of Toronto after I shot the first guy. 
but the gun jammed. Hmm. <laughs> well, I'm Mayor Henry Sherwood. I committed a break-in and trashed the newspaper offices in the home of William Lyon McKenzie. I obliterated his printing press, rolled it out the door, and threw it in the Toronto Harbor. What our audience at home can't see is how fantastic Chris's uh, Mayor Sherwood costume is. That's how he dressed. (laughs) That's true detail. So, the bar was not set very high for Toronto mayors, and some Torontonians didn't have a lot of faith that anything would actually happen or change. But Howland immediately set up a new police squad. I will root out corruption. I will close the dens of gambling. And no more sex. (laughs) I said no more sex. We're getting rid of sex! Yo, what the... Okay, no, stop. Okay. Yeah, not everyone was that into it or felt that it was working, and people took to an ancient form of Twitter known as the newspaper (laughs) to vent their feelings. Ah, here we go. From the opinion page of the Globe Toronto, Friday, March 4th, 1887. Toronto the Good is the very flattering title recently bestowed on the city. No one who knows the truths will say that the compliment is quite undeserved. Of course, yes, I agree with that. No place on the continent has a larger proportion of respectable, sober, church-going people. The city has fewer saloons than many other places, but it should have none! Wait, what? Every one of these places is a moral plague spot. Another evil for which there can be no excuse is that of allowing indecent posters around the streets. It is very difficult to prevent nasty theatrical performances, but quite easy to get rid of nasty placards. We have seen the fences covered lately with pictures representing disgusting women in a state next thing to nudity. Everybody knows that they are prepared for no other purpose than to excite men salaciously. This is a matter requiring immediate attention from the mayor and council. If they wish Toronto to be fairly entitled to the reputation of the good, By 1878, things were not going well for Howland. Even though he was the man who coined the name Toronto the Good, he was embroiled in financial scandal after financial scandal. Torontonians were looking for a new mayor. Howland put his support behind a man who had just as many prohibitionist tendencies, Elias Rogers. Elias Rogers lost the race for mayor, but then became an alderman and kept working with his brother in his coal company. Elias's nephew became a director of Imperial Oil, and that nephew had a son, Ted Rogers, who's the namesake of this theater we're standing in. hey Yeah, so <laughs> this, this whole night was based around that one. Fact. <laughs> hey, when else am I going to use my fun fact about <laughs> Elias Rogers other than tonight, right here, right now? Anyway, okay. Howland was out, but a piece of him really stuck with this city. 
the Canadian Temperance Act of 1878, which gave local governments the right to ban the sale of alcohol, which made it really hard to get booze legally in Toronto. Yeah, to do so, you would actually need a prescription by your doctor. Hey, uh, doc, you know, I I just need to get drunk, right? Oh, yeah. Sure, here is a prescription, and if they ask, just tell them you got gout. Sick. (laughs) By 1916, it was official. Alcohol was illegal in the province of Ontario. Speakeasies and home breweries popped up all over the place. Torontonians were still drinking, but just not publicly. American bootleggers brought booze into underground bars and for years made good money off the people of Toronto. One of the most successful bootleggers was Rocco Perry, an Italian immigrant who lived in Hamilton. Hey, yeah, I'm from the 905 because even though I make good bootleg money, I still can't afford to live in Toronto. Hey, anyone want a glass of Merlot? I make it in my car. When Prohibition officially ended in 1927, parts of Toronto still kept it going. It was only in 1983 when Blue Jays fans could finally sit and watch a baseball game with a beer in their hand. Up until then, Blue Jays games felt like funerals. This is going to be a hard loss. It is a beautiful gathering, though. Hmm. Uh, Next up to bat, your third baseman... Mickey Klutz. The neighborhood of St. Clair West did not have a drop of alcohol served in it until 1997. Yeah, that must have been great for tourism, Mm -hmm. Toronto. Um, Another neighborhood in Toronto called The Junction was alcohol-free until 1998, and the first drink was not poured until 2001, which means the year 2000 in The Junction was... (laughs) (laughs) Moby is amazing, isn't he? Yeah, I guess, but I'm more of a Jamiroquai dude, so... uh... Hey, uh, can I get you a drink? Yeah, sure. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, what do you want? Like an apple juice or an orange? Hey, cool. They have Minute Maid here. (laughs) That is one sober neighborhood. (laughs) Toronto has always been a city of neighborhoods. Historically, one neighborhood in particular became a reflection of this new Toronto. St. John's Ward became the first home to successive communities of immigrants and refugees in the 19th and 20th century. In the 1840s, thousands of Irish immigrants came to Toronto fleeing the potato famine. They were met by African Americans who had made it to Toronto via the Underground Railroad. Some black Canadians had established businesses all over the city. Eastern Europeans also came to St. John's Ward as refugees fleeing the European revolutions. It was often described as a slum neighborhood, but for many it was a place they could hear their languages, practice their faiths, eat their food, and see their people. The Polish, the Ukrainian, and the Jewish community all came to the neighborhood that they simply called the Ward. It had become a community of newcomers. The Ward was Toronto's first Little Italy and Toronto's first Chinatown, a place where Chinese railway workers would come after a long day of grueling labor. The Ward is now gone, demolished over years in the name of progress. 
It stood at the center of the city, so it's no wonder it's where Toronto would eventually build our city hall and our biggest gathering place, Nathan Phillips Square. The ward may no longer be there, but its legacy lives on throughout the city. For many today, Toronto is still a place where you come to find your people, whoever they might be. My reserve is just an hour and a half away from Toronto. Historically, my people, as well as many other Indigenous nations, traveled, traded, farmed, and lived on this land for thousands of years. Every day, I remind myself of how my people helped to create this place. Now, in the city, there are over 70,000 Indigenous people here from many different nations. And... When I grew up in Alberta, other than my family, I never saw a reflection of myself. And then I moved to Toronto. I walked through Regent Park, Kensington Market, and Koreatown. And then I went on to Little India on Girard, and I found Jewish and Filipino businesses side by side on Bathurst and Wilson. I went up to Little Jamaica on Eglinton West. Walking through those neighborhoods bustling with people and seeing so many faces that look like mine. That is when I knew I had found my people. And that is when I knew that, love it or hate it, Toronto was home. Home. The Secret Life of Canada was recorded live in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the New Credit. It was written and hosted by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, Phelan Johnson, and starring... Brandon Hackett. Jane Luke. Chris Siddiqui and directed by Carrie Griffin. Our musical director is Matt Reed. The associate producer for CBC Podcast is Allison Broverman and our historical consultant was John Weir. Uh, the producer of The uh, Secret Life of Canada is Katie Jensen. And the digital producer is Fabiola Carletti. The senior producer of CBC Podcast is Tanya Springer and the executive producer is Arif Nurani. Thank you so much to the folks here at Hot, Hot Docs Podcast Festival, the staff of the Ted Rogers Theater. Remember to visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Secret Life of CAD. You can also email us at secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, when it comes to the untold and undertold stories of Canada, pass, pass it, it on. on. Thank you. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.